Hey, it's Greg Brown. Grab your logbook, because it's time for another cockpit adventure from the flying carpet. I'm an aviation author, adventure columnist, photographer, former National Flight Instructor of the Year, and Barnes & Noble Arizona Author of the Month. The Flying Carpet is a four-place single-engine light airplane. In it, my wife Jean and I have long traveled the North American continent, searching behind clouds for the real America, and experiencing aerial adventures like today's all along the way. Learn more at my website, gregbrownflyingcarpet.com, where you can also see photos from most episodes. And I'd appreciate your feedback in my Flying Carpet Podcast Facebook group. Okay, everyone, it's boarding time. Hop into my flying carpet, buckle your seatbelts, and prepare for takeoff on today's adventure, painted into a corner, about a scary flight facing down thunderstorms in the dark of night. This is one flight I don't care to repeat. Clear prop. St. John's VOR is out of service, said the flight service briefer as we prepared to depart Santa Fe, New Mexico for Scottsdale, Arizona and home. VORs, or Very High Frequency Omnidirectional Range Stations, are ground-based navigational radio transmitters used by aviators to navigate point-to-point. The VOR network is organized into a series of cross-country Victor Airways connecting various destinations. Before GPS, this sort of radio navigation was the primary method for navigating by instruments when pilots couldn't see the ground. Anyway, located just across the Arizona border, St. John's VOR was notable in those pre-GPS days as the only radio navigation aid on the 274-mile instrument airway between Albuquerque and Phoenix, making Victor 190 one of the longer routes in the country served by a single VOR. My normal modus operandi, heading from Santa Fe home to Scottsdale, was to intercept Victor 190 west of the Albuquerque VOR and follow it home via the St. John's VOR. However, I didn't think much about the outage at the time. While the St. John's VOR would be critical to flying the journey in clouds using flight instruments, today's weather was clear and I had traveled this route often enough to easily navigate the two-and-a-half-hour flight visually by pilotage. Launching late in the afternoon in a rented Cessna 172RG Cutlass, my family and I cruised blue skies southwestward over New Mexico's Malpai Volcanic Badlands. The last 45 minutes or so would be completed over lower terrain at night. Approaching the Arizona border, however, I noted distant clouds. I radioed flight service for weather reports at the few nearby reporting stations and learned that an unforecast stratus layer had recently formed, extending much of the way to Phoenix. Fortunately, it was benign. The clouds were only a few thousand feet thick, and with summertime temperatures well above freezing, there was no danger of icing. Visual flight conditions prevailed underneath the clouds. The only serious weather anywhere, the briefer told me, is a line of heavy thunderstorms along the Mugion Rim south of Winslow, paralleling your route 30 miles to the north. 
Soon we cruised under clouds at 8,500 feet, ogling an intense lightning show from the dense formation of thunderheads far off our right wing. I'd anticipated reaching lower country by nightfall, but we'd been slowed by headwinds. And besides, darkness falls early under clouds. I calculated the cloud ceilings to be about a thousand feet above the highest ridges ahead. While plenty in daytime, that's risky for night flight over invisible mountains. So I began considering alternatives. Tucson reported clear off our left wing, and of course it was also clear behind us in New Mexico. But given fair weather at our destination, the most obvious solution was to simply file an instrument flight plan, climb to Victor 190's 12,000-foot minimum en route instrument altitude, and fly an easy 45 minutes through the clouds before breaking into the clear. Since headwinds and poor aircraft performance would further slow us at that higher altitude, I decided to proceed visually beneath the overcast as far as possible before dusk and only then file instruments allowing us to enter the clouds. For instrument alternates, we had plenty of fuel to reach Tucson if necessary, or in a pinch could turn back to St. John's. Twenty minutes later in gathering twilight, I radioed Albuquerque Center for a pop-up instrument clearance to Scottsdale Airport. Good evening. I'll be glad to issue you an instrument clearance. Of course, the St. John's VOR near your present position is out of service. Are you receiving Phoenix VOR yet? No, I replied, but I'm proceeding directly toward it and should pick it up soon. Are you receiving Albuquerque VOR behind you? With each some 135 miles away, I replied that we were too low to get either of them at this point. Well, you're below my radar coverage in that area, and I need you on radar or navigating by VOR to issue a clearance. Can you climb in visual conditions to the minimum and root instrument altitude of 12,000 feet? I should be able to pick you up at 10 or 11,000 feet as you climb. But the ceiling was far too low for that. We were already skimming the cloud bases at 8,500. Here we were, sandwiched between soon-to-be invisible clouds and mountains at nightfall. Tell you what. Are you receiving Winslow VOR? If so, I can clear you direct to Winslow, climbing to 12,000 feet, followed by vectors to Phoenix once I get you on radar. Winslow was indeed the only navigational station I could currently receive, but it was 90 degrees off course, and more importantly, it was directly behind those evil thunderheads. My stomach churned. The 172RG, the model we were flying, is a notoriously poor climb performer, especially at altitude loaded with a family of four and bags as we were. In fact, the Cutlass's swashbuckling model name has largely been perverted by its pilots to the gutless. Anyway, I calculated that at an optimistic 300 feet per minute climb and 90 knots ground speed, it would take us some 10 minutes and 15 miles to reach 12,000 feet. That would put us dangerously close to that line of thunderstorms south of Winslow. Stand by one, I said to the controller, seeking a moment to gather my thoughts. But there were no alternatives. We were over high terrain and near darkness, and diverting visually was no longer an option.
I could receive only the Winslow VOR, not my planned alternate of Tucson, nor our Phoenix area destination. Reversing course visually to St. John's at this point would be dangerous, as we'd now traveled some distance under the clouds and there was higher terrain behind us. Fortunately, I knew the area, and I knew that climbing to even 10,000 feet would put us well above any terrain between here and Scottsdale. There was no choice. We'll take that clearance via Winslow, I said, with vectors toward Victor 190 or Phoenix as soon as possible. Then I turned privately to Gene. If he doesn't get us on radar by 10,000 feet, we'll steer back southwest toward Phoenix anyway. That's plenty high enough to clear terrain, and we don't dare approach those thunderstorms. Then I applied climb power and turned 90 degrees to the right, climbing us ever so slowly into black and turbulent clouds directly toward those thunderstorms. days, pilots sometimes used ADF receivers as rudimentary lightning detectors. Although challenging to master for navigation, the ADF, or Automatic Direction Finder, was a conceptually simple device consisting of a radio receiver driving an indicator needle that pointed to selected navigational stations called NDBs. Uh, that stands for non-directional beacons, for those who care. And you could also use it to steer to commercial broadcast radio stations. In fact, when not using ADFs for navigation, pilots often tuned in AM radio stations to listen to ball games and the like. You old-timers will remember hearing lightning-induced static on your AM car radios. Well, I tuned our airplane's ADF off-station between 2 and 400 kilohertz in the AM radio band and turned up the volume. Instead of the usual steady hiss, our headsets brimmed with sandpaper crackles. With each crackle of lightning-induced static, the ADF needle swung vigorously toward its source, tagging repeated intense lightning strikes spanning 30 degrees either side of our nose. There was no doubt about it. We were headed directly toward a very active line of severe thunderstorms. We were inching toward 10,000 feet in cloud-shrouded blackness when our cockpit suddenly strobed half a dozen times in an instant with blinding light. Both kids shrieked from the back seat. Whoa, said Jean. Did I just hear thunder over the engine? Probably not, I said, hoping she was wrong. And those flashes were likely just distant lightning transmitted through the clouds. But silently, I hoped it wasn't cloud-to-cloud lightning radiating in our direction. Several more terrifying flashes followed, and then... A few more lightning flashes followed, but they rapidly faded behind us as we turned tail to the weather. Twenty minutes later, we burst from the clouds into a starry nighttime sky and descended for landing at Scottsdale Airport. But my mind echoed with terror. Probably we'd been far from the sources of those blinding flashes, but who could know for sure? None of this would have happened had I requested an instrument clearance before reaching the cloud deck back in New Mexico. We'd simply have climbed visually to 12,000 feet and proceeded on course. 
but I'd painted us into a corner. As always, the piloting errors we survive teach valuable lessons. In the future, I vowed to launch earlier in the day over such routes and to file instruments at the first hint I might need it, not at the last moment. Ooh, sometimes it's good to be back on the ground. Thanks for riding along on today's flying carpet adventure. Please help me continue this podcast by sharing your favorite flying carpet episodes on social media, posting reviews on your favorite podcast directories, and donating via my Greg Brown Flying Carpet website. Thanks in advance for your support. You can find photos from most episodes at my website, gregbrownflyingcarpet.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please check out my book of aviation adventure stories, Flying Carpet, The Soul of an Airplane, for which I was named Barnes & Noble Arizona Author of the Month. Learn about that and my other aviation books at gregbrownflyingcarpet.com. Also at gregbrownflyingcarpet.com, you'll find my views from the flying carpet aerial photography, available in fine art metal prints and pilot achievement plaques. Oh, and I'd appreciate hearing your feedback in my Flying Carpet Podcast Facebook group. Follow my social media sites, most of which can be found by searching Greg Brown Flying Carpet, and consider joining my student pilot pep talk group on Facebook. Thanks again for joining me on today's Flying Carpet Cockpit Adventure. Music by Hannes Brown. See you next time.